This podcast is a special addition to TCTMD's Talking Points, supported by an educational grant from Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. Welcome. I'm Dr. Anaitha Dua. I am a vascular surgeon at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm an assistant professor of surgery. I'm also the uh, director of our vascular lab and co-director of our peripheral artery disease center, associate director of our wound care center. And I'm Dr. Kush Desai, associate professor of radiology, surgery, and medicine at the Northwest University Feinberg School of Medicine, where I'm also director of deep venous intervention. Dr. Desai and I recently participated in a CME activity that was supported by Janssen, which was entitled Beyond the Procedure, Evolving the Current Standard of Care for Patients with PAD. And today we want to review and discuss some of the highlights from that activity and first discuss some of the latest recommendations for antithrombotic therapy in PAD post-revascularization. So I'll just jump right in. Essentially, we really don't know what we're doing. And what I mean by that is there are a number of societies that are out there, Society of Vascular Surgery, European Society of Vascular Surgery, the WFVS, um, and of course, cardiology societies, all which have recommendations that have to do with PAD patients post-revascularization. And while there's been a lot of study that has been done in this realm, essentially post-revascularization, the only level 1A evidence that we have currently is that a patient should be given an antiplatelet therapy like an aspirin or a clopidogrel post their procedure. And this is regardless of whether the patient has an open procedure or an endovascular procedure. We are saying that in the endovascular space, sometimes patients, especially if a stent is placed or a DCB or drug-coated balloon is done, then potentially DAPT or dual antiplatelet therapy at one month can be considered up to six months, but that's very weak evidence, only to see evidence. So essentially at this point, the ACC recommendations are that if a patient gets revascularized, whether it be open surgical or endovascular, ideally the patient will have some type of antiplatelet agent given to them, occasionally two antiplatelet agents for between one to six months, which we all know is a huge span. And the majority of this data really comes from the cardiovascular literature, specifically from the cardio space, not from the peripheral. We do know that occasionally patients are put on an aspirin plus something like a rivaroxaban in order to decrease their risk of thrombosis. But that potentially can lead to bleeding complications, and that's one of the considerations that doctors have as they move forward. And that's really what we're going to discuss today. So Dr. Desai, would you mind reviewing the Voyager PAD data, please, that informed us about the use of DOACs in PAD post-revascularization? Absolutely. Thanks, Anita. So Voyager really builds on the COMPASS trial. And this is a trial that looks at a composite major cardiovascular mortality and morbidity uh, endpoint, as well as a primary safety endpoint with bleeding risk, with a secondary uh, safety endpoint for bleeding risk as well, ISTH being the secondary and TIMI being the primary. They enrolled over 6,500 patients with over 3,200 randomized to getting rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams in addition to aspirin and then the other 3,200 patients getting placebo plus aspirin. And clopidogrel could be administered for up to six months after revascularization at the discretion of the investigator. And if you look at the KM curve from the Voyager PA trial, you can see there's a persistent 
uh, decrease in cardiovascular and cumulative incidence of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality events out. It's important to note that there was nearly 14%, the 14% loss in use of rivaroxaban through the trial. And despite that, there was still a persistent decrease in cumulative incidence. On the safety side, uh, you can see that if you use ISTH, which was at greater than two grams per deciliter, there was a significant increase in bleeding risk. But according to the TIMI criteria, there wasn't. And that just reflects the more stringent, uh, the, the more stringent requirements of the ISTH uh, categorization. Thank you very much, Dr. Desai. So, you know, this is excellent data. And, you know, it's wonderful that we've had such a huge group of patients that we've been able to look at who um, have been basically randomized to aspirin versus aspirin plus rivaroxaban 2.5 BID to see whether or not thrombosis indeed decreases. And as uh, Dr. Desai just told us, that is what occurred. So this is something that's been FDA approved at this point, but how do we as physicians actually apply this? And, you know, as we are doctors, it's important for us to look at it with a critical eye. And there are some real challenges that have to go with the practical application of PAD Voyager data. Specifically, there is heterogeneity in the patient population study, which there always is in PAD. And in an attempt to decrease some of that heterogeneity, unfortunately, there was stringent exclusionary criteria put on this patient population such that a manuscript was actually published showing that only 30% of patients that we regularly see with PAD would have even been candidates for this particular study. So that makes the generalizability and the extrapolation to other PAD patients a little bit difficult. Um, Dr. Desai, I'd like to ask you, um, in what types of patients with PAD would you use post-revascularization rivaroxaban plus aspirin? So, you know, it's a great question. Certainly complex polyvascular patients, patients that have multiple vascular beds that are at risk or have demonstrated um, uh, an issue in the past, patients that have had uh, revascularization failure, those that you know, you intervened upon and then in a short term, you have to re-intervene upon, you have to do something different. You have to change your approach. And if it, on the initial post-revascularization, you didn't use rivaroxaban plus aspirin, I certainly would change my approach, assuming that there was no technical factor. And then, you know, you have to consider many other things such as the patient's ability to comply with the medication, um, their, their ability to afford the medication, that which is a part of the compliance. And then you have to look at their bleeding risks or the fall risks, et cetera, that you want to maybe consider not using a more aggressive uh, anticoagulation therapy. I agree with everything that you said, everything. The only thing that I would add is, you know, from my perspective, the other big thing is if I'm going to take a patient that's on aspirin and add something to that regime, usually I will add clopidogrel. And that's just because, again, from the cardiology literature and what we've been doing, quote unquote, for so long. But as we know, there are a substantial number of patients, up to 25%, that actually have clopidogrel resistance. And there's resistance where the patient just cannot react to that, but there's also responsiveness. Different patients may respond differently to certain drugs uh, at different doses. And so the idea of being able to replace all of that confusion with just saying 2.5 BID of rivaroxaban is wonderful. So there are pros and cons, but that's another thing that I take into account. And really the cost element comes in at that point because uh, clopidogrel may be something that might be easier for the patient to get than rivaroxaban. But what's of course the point of clopidogrel if the patient is resistant to it. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, exactly. Let me ask you, um, Dr. Desai, also, what barriers do you face in the selection of intensive antithrombotic therapy for PAD patients post-revascularization, and what strategies do you use to address these? Yeah, you know, cost and access is, is one of the big things, and the manufacturers have really come a long way in helping with the access part of it, you know, with cards that we can provide to patients. But as you can see in this trial, which of course is not totally real world, there's a 14% drop-off of patients. And despite that 14% drop-off in all comers, 
in an intention to treat model, there was still that uh, persistent improvement. And so cost access is going to be the big one and then bleeding risks and really educating people like a little bit of, you know, you might have a nosebleed here and there, that's okay. But you also pointing out what you need to watch out for, what I want to know about right away. So those are probably the two biggest things that come up in my practice. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't have said it better than myself. I mean, cost and access, major, major issues that need to be dealt with. But you know, that's where the clinical trials come in. The more the clinical trials make a point, the sooner we get it to, you know, Medicare, Medicaid on the congressional floor that these things need to be included. And then insurance companies ideally would cover it at a cost um, factor that is something that patients have access to now. So um, in conclusion, I really want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, Dr. Desai and I are so thrilled that you're here and you can view the entirety of this activity to hear the whole discussion and see three wonderful patient cases where we actually applied this data and of course receive CME credit, most important. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you.